right, so this week, finally, talking about uh, perspicuity. Uh, it's the second to last week in the class, so we have just one more week. Sheldon's coming back, and he's going to tie it all together, land the plane for us, talking about application of Scripture. So last week we talked about interpretation of Scripture and different ways that we interpret Scripture, and this week we're going to talk about the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. And so as we think about interpretation and how we interpret things, um, one of the things that's important for us to understand is that Scripture is clear. And so what do we mean when we say that? So the definition of perspicuity uh, is the quality of being clear and easy to understand. So how does that relate to Scripture? Is that something that you uh, experience in, when you read scripture? Sometimes. Is it too soon to ask questions? Sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. Well, it influences the translation we chose to use. Sure. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the translations are easier. The original King James Version is probably not very uh, understandable, uh, even though it's in the English language, we would not find much clarity in that. So the five things that I want to talk about today, or the five parts of perspicuity, is first, that scripture testifies to its own clarity. But, number two, all scripture is not equally clear to everyone. And then all scripture is not equally clear to any one individual. So I could read parts of scripture that are not clear to me, and other parts could be clear to me. And that could vary individual to individual. But the fourth point, and probably the most important point, when we think about the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture, is that all the essential truths that are necessary for salvation are clear somewhere in Scripture to those who have eyes and ears to hear, eyes to see and ears to hear. And then the fifth point is that we may need aids to help us understand parts of Scripture. So I wanted to start the introduction by making sure that we kind of clarify what we are saying when we talk about the clarity of Scripture and what we're not saying. We are saying, that third, fourth point, that all truth that is needed for faith and salvation is clear in Scripture. And that that clarity does not actually impart salvation, but complements what the Holy Spirit is doing in someone's heart. So just because somebody reads scripture and has a clear understanding of it, that is not salvific. We are, say, we are not saying that there's a salvation because of, so this is the idea of intellectual understanding or clear, intellectual clarity versus saving clarity. So scripture doesn't save us. Understanding scripture doesn't save us. But understanding scripture in the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is an aid to the salvation. So we, we, there's, a, there's an intellectual or a, like an understanding that needs to occur. And the way that God has communicated to us is through scripture. So our salvation can be understood in scripture with, part, with the Holy Spirit. And then two things that we're not saying. So we're not saying 
that there are no mysteries in Scripture or that some concepts in Scripture aren't fully understandable to the human mind. Riffing off of the other class. There are some parts of Scripture that are a mystery, and we are also not saying that Scripture is always equally clear across the board. There are parts of Scripture that are unclear and we may need aids, or we may just not be able to understand parts of Scripture. But these are not going to be the essentials of the faith. Thoughts so far, before we kind of dive in. No thoughts. All right. I have a quote from, oh, someone say something. No? Okay. <laughs> I have a quote from Jerry Brashears that I think kind of sums up this idea pretty nicely. Evangelicals believe that scripture is comprehensible enough so that with the aid of the Holy Spirit and by using sound hermeneutic, which goes back to our interpretation, uh, allows, that allows scripture to interpret itself, anyone who desires to do so can understand God's message. This being true, all Christians should have unrestricted access to God's word in his or her own language. So that's kind of the summary idea of perspicuity. And before we get into our five points, I did want, and this is appropriate, probably, and we, I got bumped from last week, but this is appropriate uh, because our, we're kind of celebrating Reformation Sunday. This idea of the perspicuity or clarity of scripture is something that, that's always been true but it's something that was definitely revived in the Reformation. And so prior or around the time of the Reformation or kind of the, the building blocks to Luther's um, starting of the Reformation, the church's view had become that scripture was obscure and needed some infallible interpretation by the church for all that scripture addresses, even those essential things that we would call um, essentials of faith and practice. So what the church had viewed, the church's view had become that the laity could not understand scripture. It was too obscure for them. And they, that any interpretation of scripture needed to be made by the church, the authority of the church and not by the people that were attending the church to the point that the church, the, the services weren't in the native language. The scripture was not in the native languages of the people. And most of what the experience of these kind of the medieval churches, uh, attendee attendees, I guess, par parishioners, most of their experience was this very, uh, I'm just going to go and get my sacraments checked off. So I'm not, I don't really understand anything that was is being said by the priests. And I just need to get my sacraments so that I can be, you know, get my measure of grace for the next time. And so it had turned into this very um, magical view of what the priest did. And the priests were often had become uneducated because they were, they didn't really understand Latin if they were in England or Germany or something like that. They had kind of moved away from being able to understand Latin. And so the, um, the priests kind of were just going through the motions and they couldn't interpret or teach 
a Sunday school class about what scripture said either at that point. Um, and, you know, tomorrow's Halloween. Um, not the most important thing tomorrow, but it's one of the things. <laughs> but it had become so magical that the term hocus pocus is actually derived from when the medieval church priests would say, this is my body, it's hocus corpus meum. Uh, that's, that turned into the term hocus pocus, this like magical thing that was being done by the priest to, um, to deliver the sacrament to the people. So when they would say, this is my body in Latin, it sounded like hocus pocus and it became kind of this colloquial term that we use now. And there was a lot of corruption, all that stuff. So the three kind of big precursors to what Luther was trying to do, the three people um, in church history were Wycliffe, uh, Huss, and Tyndale. And they, they, were, they had some interesting views on things, but one of the things that they all promoted was getting the Bible, the scripture, into the vernacular language of the people that they were taking care of. So Wycliffe wanted to reform England's church and translate the Bible into English. And he did that. Um, he also had some pretty strong views against um, the leadership of the church. So he was one of the first people to call the Pope the Antichrist, which is uh, you know, one of the things I don't think we, we focus on in the London Baptist, but it made it into the London Baptist confession um, and other confessions as well. Um, but he tried to address the corruption, but his big contribution was he was one of the first people to push the idea of, no, there, the scripture is clear. We need to get it into the people's hands in a language that they can understand because that is what, that's, that's what we need to do. Like, this is not, we don't, this isn't a magical thing. This isn't, un, this isn't, this is an understandable thing that everybody should have, um, and then after he died, he was condemned as a heretic. And I think we talked about this several weeks ago. They dug up his bones and burned him at the stake, burned his bones at the stake after he was dead. So they really had a great view of Wycliffe. And he was in 13, the 1300s. After him, or kind of contemporary with him, was Huss. And he was in Bohemia, which I think is modern-day Germany, part of Germany, kind of. And he had some interesting views and was very political in, in, uh, in addition to um, some of his other uh, views. But he wanted to, again, bring the scripture into the vernacular of the people that, were, that, he, um, that he followed. And he wanted to have the mass in the vernacular language as well. So he kind of took what Wycliffe was doing and pushed it a little bit further and he was burned at the stake, arrested and burned at the stake as well. Um, but his movement, um, which had a political tone to it, uh, pushed for change in the church in the Bohemian region. And then Tyndale uh, was about a century later, and he uh, did a full translation. So he was contemporary with Erasmus, and he did a full translation of uh, the scripture from the Greek and Hebrew into English. Uh, and that was done in 1526 to 1536. And his, the Tyndale Bible is one of the main sources for the King James Version of the Bible, which is kind of the precursor for us 
Uh, we don't use that Bible version, but it was it was eighty percent used uh, uh, the Tyndale Bible. And then he he got into trouble for a different reason. He was burned at the stake, but it was because he uh, opposed the king's annulment and marriage issue. So they called him a heretic, even though he just he was making a political statement, and he was burned at the stake as well. And then Luther, obviously, one of the first things Luther did as he started the Reformation was to translate the Bible into English. And this is a, a long introduction, but this is one of the, it wasn't one of the five solas, although sola scriptura is related to this, but it was a key understanding, a key thought, the idea that the scripture is clear and should be in the hands of everybody, every Christian. That was a main sub heading of the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers, um, and so forth. Long history lesson. I think it's appropriate for today, but what do you all think about that? And we'll kind of get into the rest of the lesson. I think it's amazing when Luther did translate it into German, the the thing that came out of that, mm -hmm. that followed that with the Anabaptists. And yeah all the the ability to comprehend and read scripture as a in a normal native tongue had some bad consequences yeah as well yeah yeah we've talked about that kind of throughout this class some of the concepts that have created issues right we have kind of throughout church history there's always been these ditches that people have fallen into and one of the ways that people fall into ditches is when you put the when you put the scripture into the common vernacular, more people are reading it, and they're taking those unclear parts of scripture and forcing them onto faith and practice, and, and really even moving, uh, you know, creating her heretical movements and things like that. There were things that Anabaptists believed that were kind of a little bit off the wall. I think it's interesting that through all those centuries when it was so unclear, when they'd go to a service, <clears throat> they still knew in their hearts that they needed mm -hmm. the Lord. They needed God. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I just think it's interesting that, that that continued, that they kept going even though they're speaking a language they don't understand and... You know, it's unclear to them. There's almost a deeper faith that's required yeah. in that. Like, it's yeah. for us, we have all these commentaries and scripture and all these different translations. And, you know, still we we struggle. But here, the, this medieval church especially, right, with the Black Plague and all of the adversities in their life. And they still went. Yeah. It's interesting. And that scripture was not corrupted during that time when there were very few eyes, right? Like that, mm. that time, that medieval time was a time of incredible corruption in the church. There were multiple popes that were, uh, you know, excommunicating each other. And there was a lot of corruption in the church at that time. And God protected his word through that even though there weren't people to say, hey, wait a minute, what you're doing here, you know, you're adding to scripture. Um, they were still able, it was still able to be protected. That's interesting you said that, like, as more people have access to the scripture, then people were bringing in 
pieces that weren't quite like the sure. core of it. But we're supposed to be talking about the clarity of scripture. Yeah. And how it's clear at different levels of different people. And so it's just how it all kind of ties together. You gotta have access to all of it because if one person is controlling all the information, yeah, then it's only their interpretation and you don't have direct access to God anymore, right? Yep. Because it's not speaking to you. But then if you all have access to it, it can get confusing, right? Yeah. Which is kind of the devil's playground to say, like, if I can confuse people a little bit, then that's pretty easy to share sure. a bad form, right? Yeah. So it's just interesting. It is interesting. And I think that's why this um, this view of the clarity of scripture and what that what is clear in scripture was so fought for in because because if we have all of scripture, it's easy for us to take unclear passages and try to imply those unclear passages onto the clear passages about faith and salvation. And that's where you get into trouble. That's where you end up with cults and sects and, uh, you know, things like things like that. So the clarity, like saying, no, these essentials of the faith are clear in scripture and we're going to hold them up. All scriptures, God breathed, right? But these clear things in scripture are, are the point and this imagery and unclear things are not, are, are going to accentuate what is clear about what the clear central message is, right? We've talked about the central message of scripture. <clears throat> so the London Baptist um, confession, chapter one, paragraph seven, uh, similar to the Westminster in this, uh, I don't know if it's the same chapter paragraph, says all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. So that's a long, a long version of saying scripture is clear about the essentials of salvation and faith. And even people that don't have an education in um, hermeneutics are able to understand those things. So I want to kind of dig into make sure, yeah, uh, the five points that are, are made in the book. The first point is that scripture <coughs> testifies to its own clarity. And I've got some uh, verses for us to kind of look at in, in terms of this. And these are mostly verse, I think the, the um, book mentions these verses, but the confession, the London Baptist Confession also identifies these. The, the one of them is, is kind of been our big verse, which is 2 Timothy 3.16. So all scripture is God breathed and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the idea that that passage we've used to kind of think about scripture in a lot of different ways, the God breathed aspect of it. But the assumption of 2 Timothy 3.16 is that everybody can profit from scripture. So it's breathed out by God, but it's profitable to everybody, meaning that it's not obscure. The essentials of living the Christian life are not obscure in scripture. That's the assumption of that verse. Uh, Psalm 19, um, if somebody wants to pull up Psalm or John uh, 20, 
30 and 31. And while we're, someone's doing that, Psalm 19, 7 and 8, the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. So this idea in the in the psalm that what is that what God is revealing to his people is clear, it's perfect, and it rejoices the heart. Um, John 20, who has John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that in that um, passage, that's a clear um, view that Jesus is saying, or the, the John is saying that what is written is sufficient for us to believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and that you may have life in his name. So that's the idea that those things that are clear for salvation are written in the book. Um, There's another scripture in 119, Psalms 119. Yep. I don't know if that's on your list. It is. Okay. Yeah, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Yep. And that... Psalm 119 is a big long one, but 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, which is kind of that well-known one. And then 130, the unfolding of your word gives light and understanding. Um, I had a quote from, I thought the, there was a quote in the book from Luther. I'm going to read that because I think it's really helpful. It's a longer quote, um, but I think it's really helpful. So, uh, Luther says, You see then that the entire content of the scriptures has now been brought to light. Even though some passages which contain unknown words remain obscure, thus it is, un it is unintelligent and ungodly to, when you know what the contents of scripture are clear as can be, to pronounce them as obscure on account of those few obscure words. The words are obscure in one place, they are clear in another. What God has so plainly declared to the world is in some parts of Scripture stated in plain words, while in other parts it lies hidden under obscure words. But when something, understand, something stands in broad daylight and a mass of evidence for it is in broad daylight also, it does not matter whether there is any evidence for it in the dark. Who will maintain that the town fountain does not stand in the light because the people down some alley cannot see it? while everyone in the square can see it. So kind of that imagery of what's clear is there. It's right in front of us. It's clear. And we can't look to the side at some obscurity when the clarity of Scripture is testifying to, to salvation and to who Jesus is. Uh, even we, We're not supposed to get distracted by something that might seem unclear in some parts. So that was the first point, Scripture testifying to its own clarity. The second point is all Scripture is not equally clear to everybody. So the big example uh, of this is Christ's parables. So he intentionally spoke in parables. One of them is uh, the parable of the sower in Mark. And uh, at the end of it, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And when he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you this to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are, are, are outside, everything comes in parables, so that while seeing, they may not perceive, and while hearing, they may not hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. So this is the idea that you need to have the Holy Spirit um, in order to understand some things, and Jesus didn't always speak clearly. He did speak clearly, and he did preach the coming of his kingdom, right, at times, but then there are other times where he spoke in parables, and so that's kind of the idea that it's not, Scripture is not always equally clear to everybody. And then there's the idea that not all of Scripture is clear to any one individual. So when we think about that, there are some things in Scripture that are open to interpretation. Again, the essentials of the faith are not open to interpretation, um, but there are some things that are open to interpretation are obscure in Scripture. Baptism. We would hold, we hold uh, believers' baptism, but there are other believers that hold to pedo baptism, and that's not. At, we would say it's probably it's clear in Scripture, but there are people who would say that pedo baptism is clear in Scripture. Again, it's not an essential of the faith; it's a kind of a secondary issue, but it's something that. I'm, I believe one way, and there's somebody else that might believe a different way, but it's not an essential to the faith. Eschatology. There's a lot of different views of the end times. There's four main ones, right? But it's not clear in Scripture any, which of those four are absolutely correct, which allows us to have differences of opinion about what happens at the end of the world, right? So that's an example of I read scripture one way and someone else might read scripture and come to a different interpretation of the end times. I think we would say an essential of the faith is that Jesus is coming and he's establishing his kingdom and he is uh, bringing the new heavens and the new earth, right? We could say that, but how that happens, there's differences of opinion about, right? Some believe in there's a rapture and some believe an amillennial perspective, some believe a postmillennial perspective. So there's lots of different views there that, but the end goal is what, what is the essential of what's hap what happens at the end of time. Church structure. There's people that will read scripture and think that the church should be stru structured in a Presbyterian way or a congregational way or an elder led way. Worship, how we worship. There's lots of different variabilities in how we worship. And that is um, something that is not absolutely clear in Scripture and is open for interpretation. Uh, role of government. We've had lots of debate over the last few years about the role of government, right? There's some people that have uh, a view of the role of government based on Romans 13 and other places um, that would differ with other people. And we've had lots of debates about that. Again, not an essential, not a faith and salvation thing, not a Christian living thing, but it, a, a debate because Scripture is not absolutely clear on how we should live in, our, in government's role in 21st century United States. Um, there's also difficult passages in Scripture that we don't have a clear understanding of, and those are not going to be passages that are essential to the faith. Those are going to be secondary issues. 
and even, you know, uh, I don't look too much at commentaries, uh, biblical commentaries, but I've heard Ryan say and, and uh, Jeremy say in the sermons that commentators disagree. There was just a, a sermon a few months ago on the passage of John that was where commentators disagreed about where that passage actually fit, right? So there's things, but, it, but that was not an essential to salvation. And our fourth, fourth point, which is kind of one of the bigger, the, the biggest point is all essential truths regarding salvation are clear. Um, and if someone could pull up 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, that kind of is one of the main passages that helps us kind of understand this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You want to keep going? Or? No, that's good. So that that is one of the passages that is absolutely clear. There's no room for interpretation there. It is a clear passage that's talking about what Christ did, and it was delivered to us as first importance. So the essential truths of the faith are clearly delivered to us in Scripture. There are other places where Christ's actions and our salvation are uh, described in Scripture where it might be a little bit less clear. Hebrews might be an example where you're, you're, it's so dense and there's so much going on in the first couple chapters of Hebrews that it might not be as clear. But if we bring in the idea that Scripture interprets itself, we can take that maybe less clear. There's some obscure words. There are big words there and apply it to this passage, which is very clear, um, which helps us understand. And that kind of, there's there's a lot of different ways to explain that, but one of the things that we've talked about is the idea of hierarchy of truths. So those primary issues that are salvation issues, and then there's like secondary and tertiary issues, which we talked about, like baptism and eschatology and things like that. And we get into trouble when we confuse those, but what the the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is saying is that those primary issues, probably sound like a broken record saying it over and over again, those primary issues that are essential for faith and practice are clear to us in Scripture, are delivered to us as of first importance. And then the last point that the author makes is the idea that we might need aids to help us understand things in Scripture. Um, the idea of clarity, again, is that those essentials to, for salvation, so that, that delivery of information, along with the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, is enough for us to attain salvation. So the Holy Spirit is, uh, is applying salvation to us, but our, under, our intellectual understanding component of that is happening through our reading of Scripture and those clear concepts. But there are some things that we might need help with. So the ordinary means um, of the confession, the confession talks about ordinary means at the very end of that um, confession, it says, or the, the paragraph, it says, 
all uh, so it says um are so so yet things which are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due course and in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them so this idea of aids of understanding is these ordinary means of understanding one of the big things is the Bible being translated into our language. Our service is in our language. Ryan or Jeremy, whoever is preaching today, is not going to get up and speak in Latin. He's speaking in our, our language. That's part of this these ordinary means for us to understand Scripture. And it doesn't mean that we have to have a 12-part commentary on every book of the Bible. That would be kind of extraordinary means. But these ordinary means of the daily Christian life, our ability to read and understand things, um, have things explained to us. This Sunday school, the discussions that we have help us understand scripture. That's what is being talked about by ordinary the ordinary means. So it's not too technical. Um, and this is one of the things that the reformers fought for, these, these, these aids in understanding. The medieval church, they were going to mass and hearing a language that they had no understanding of and experiencing something that they they could experience, the, the Eucharist and, and so forth, but they had no understanding of why they were doing what they were doing besides just the tradition of saying, oh, on Sunday or whatever day, Sundays, and we would, we're going to go to church, we're going to go to Mass, and they're going to talk for a while and we're going to do some chants in language that we don't understand and then they're going to do this thing with this wafer and wine and then we're going to go home and come back next Sunday but there wasn't an understanding about what they were doing there wasn't a concept there wasn't a deep concepts um, primarily because at that time the priest couldn't even explain in their own language they were just doing the priests were doing the same thing they were reading a language that wasn't common to their understanding so these ordinary means were so important to the reformers because they, because they knew that that was the, what, what would drive people to have a deeper understanding of their faith, being able to read the scripture in their own language, being able to hear it taught in their own language, and then having some of those other ordinary means um, as well. So having scholars that were able to dig into those unclear passages and try to help make those unclear passages more clear to people. And um, the other part is, uh, so what are some of the problems? We talked at the beginning about some of the problems as we kind of wrap up. Some of the problems with the this concept of the perspicuity of Scripture and by extension some of the things that came out of it uh, putting the scripture into people's vernacular um, can lead to biblicism. We've talked about that in this class and in other classes. The idea that I'm just going to take my Bible and lock myself in a closet and that's all I need. So um, church history would say that that's not, that's not correct. Scripture would say that that's not correct. You need the body of believers. Um, and the ref reformers would say that that's not correct. These ordinary means 
of understanding are part of it. So you can get into a lot of trouble um, by locking yourself in your closet with the Bible and just kind of go into town, especially if you don't have appropriate training and if you're not applying hermeneutics appropriately. I feel like I've talked a lot. Any thoughts <laughs> so far? <laughs> Any thoughts about that? What are some other problems that you could anticipate from this idea of perspicuity and specifically the idea of putting the Bible into lay people's hands and just telling them to run with it? I just think it's interesting that a lot of times the secondary issues are the ones that we do turn into have primaries. issues with and, you know, yeah, turn into, turn into problems and, I mean, because it is unclear and it was meant to be unclear for a reason but mm -hmm. they just come up so much <laughs> um, I was just thinking about that when you were talking how a lot of times it is yeah baptism those secondary issues that we end up well it's it's okay. stuff we can argue about I guess right yeah. like that, that might be a, a good like that might get to some of the healthiness of a church is there a, all right we've got these primary issues we're not going to argue about them. We're all on the same page on salvation and how that happens and what the Christian life looks like. But let's talk about eschatology. Let's let's talk about baptism. Let's argue about that stuff because we can, right? It causes issues, but we can argue about those things that are not absolutely clear in Scripture. It'd be nice if it could just be done more in an open-minded way. Sure. You know, instead of it causing right, yeah. division. Yeah, yeah. I think it also speaks to the maturity of the people in the conversation because sure. you can have an open debate knowing that you still agree on the fundamentals yeah. right? or the primary issues or how will we terminalize them. But then you can debate the other ones and have divisive opinions Yeah, but you still remain friends, right? Yep. I mean, that's kind of not easy to do because you have to be willing to accept other outside opinions beyond your own. Yeah. I mean, something I struggle with myself, right? It's like, I know what I know, and that's what I believe. And mm -hmm. Humility I, and grace for each other. Sure, so I'm, yeah. I got those in high amounts, yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, that, that really has to be, like, fostered as a culture within your church. Yeah. In order for that to work, because I, I come from a church culture that, which a lot of people have, I'm sure, uh, wasn't necessarily the case if uh, uh, a secondary matter or even a main matter wasn't, um, was considered controversial by them and usually created uh, issues within the church. Um, I, I, was, I was thinking about one of the issues uh, with clarity, which may tie into that, um, is the fact that um, the idea of uh, presuppositions or worldview that mm. when we go to read the Bible, um, <laughs> typically whether it's intentional or if it's completely unwittingly we, we bring our personal life experiences uh, philosophies ideas that we grew up with any number of things that we've experienced into the, the our approach to interpretation yeah. a lot of times and so sometimes despite the Bible's clarity both intellectually and spiritually uh, we allow uh, those things to inform mm. our uh, interpretation of scripture in a way that may be helpful or often more times than not is unhelpful because uh, 
a lot of times I think folks favor their experiences and uh, their presuppositions and bring into that into it and trying to glean what they can personally get out of it rather yeah. than what is the Bible saying to me? What does yeah. God intend to reveal to me? Um, so that's, I think, a constant warfare for humanity is to, to deal with uh, their own presuppositions in light of what is the scripture saying. Yeah. And that's like if you're talking about like people just want to take the Bible and lock themselves in a room and read it for themselves and don't have a community mm -hmm. to talk with. It's easy to get stuck in those mindsets and you just go in your own thought process with that. And then I think another issue too with like seeking clarity in scripture um, which we should do, but sometimes people are seeking clarity to a degree which, um, especially now with all the extra resources we have, sometimes we're reaching so far for so much clarity, it can create doubt. Yeah. Where we reach sometimes in. we just have to take things on faith. Like like you're talking about how didn't even under they didn't even understand what they were saying, but they still went, which is really confusing to me why you would go to a service and not understand why you were doing what you were doing and still go. But then now we're like, we've got so many resources that we're search searching so hard yeah. so, that it doesn't leave, sure. almost leaves no room for faith. I think yeah. we reach, and probably people do it with other books too, but the Bible, um, it's not necessarily good that we reach beyond the, uh, we reach beyond what the Bible's purpose and intent is to do. Um, mm -hmm. I was taught that like uh, um, the answer for anything you want in life can be found in the Bible, which yeah. is not, you know, Bible speaks to a lot of good and helpful things about how to approach the world, about your marriage and other stuff, but that's not the be-all, end-all purpose of the Bible is to make sure I have a happy marriage or money yeah. Or, you know, some of those things that basic things that we are concerned with. And it's not there to tell me exactly what happened to every dinosaur and everything. You know, it's Yeah. And we try and we try very hard sometimes to figure those things out in light of scripture instead of just having faith and resting in God. Yeah. Saying this is what God has intended to say to me. And uh you know Yeah, one of the things that we I mentioned at the beginning is that there are mysteries in scripture and that like the faith that we receive in our salvation is just that like it's meant for us to to have faith like have faith in things and there are things that we're not going to understand and the bible can't speak to our everything about our lives now like you know just from the logistics of there weren't cars back then you know cars and like worship service like there weren't microphones back then you know they didn't have church buildings for the most part um, so there are some things that we, we can't go back to scripture for, for, for every piece of guidance in, in our lives, but there are general principles that are helpful. And if we, do, and if there's nothing there, then we have to kind of take it at faith by faith. Great points. Thank y'all. That's great. But they said it better in five minutes than I've said it in the <laughs> <laughs> the whole session. So I appreciate that.
any other closing thoughts before we, we finish on time? Finish on time. <laughs> I was just thinking about the kind Notice of... Notice she's making noise. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's if it's late, because of her. If, yeah, <laughs> I have permission I to go <laughs> over. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever been to a Catholic Mass before, but there is something like comforting mm-hmm. in the rituals. The liturgy. But it's more spiritual there yeah. in you know the Catholic Church. But it is comforting. And there is something, you know, to be said for that, like, you go in every single Sunday, and this is exactly what you do every time. And, and just doing those things mm-hmm. is enough to maintain your salvation. Yeah. And 500 years ago, I mean, the church was, like, it. Yeah. In, in the city it of was a small center town, of town, everything right? was based on that, mm-hmm. that cathedral. And mm-hmm. it would take 200 years to build it, so everything was, was centered on it. It was very different world and I think about you mentioned Catholicism and we separate ourselves from Arminian thought by being Calvinist or mm-hmm. thinking of predestination or election in one way but there are millions millions of Christians out there that see it different at the end of the day when we're all in heaven did you choose to be here that's it not even going to be an issue because they're going to realize they're worshiping the creator yeah who saved them and so it's yeah. clear at that and point. And that is a great example of what we're talking about with clarity. We're not talking, I would say that the the way salvation happens in the individual is is a little bit open to interpretation. We believe in the predestination part, but the point is that salvation is offered to people on account of what Christ has done, right? Yeah. That, like, whether you believe in predestination or you choose it, at the end of the day, we're believing in that same clear point, right? Yeah. I would say to that, not not to be like complete devil's advocate, but there is a sense in which we are determining primary, secondary, and tertiary issues where the determination of what is primary, secondary, and tertiary is sort of a primary thing for a church, yeah. a local church to figure out. Yeah. Because, I, because while we all will be in heaven together, we all have to live this life first. Sure. And I don't see how a church can be unified in the body and function the way it needs to if there are disagreements on even some of the secondary things. So there, again, I'm not, I'm not completely playing devil's advocate, yeah. just that it, there's a sense in which there there does have to be some level of unity. That's sure. what makes a church And a that's church. what makes the church yeah. a church. And that's right. why there's different churches, um, right? Yeah. And so those yeah, we can't like us in this room. We can't disagree to to a large extent about worship, or baptism, or uh, church government. Like we can't disagree about that and maintain the unity of our church, right? Even those those are secondary issues. And I've got friends that go to Presbyterian churches, right? That we're we're both believers, but that would be a secondary issue. For between the two of us, but the relationships kind of matter. Yeah. But then there are some things we can disagree about within. I mean, I think probably even in our church, it, maybe it would be a little bit more uncomfortable, but somebody could have an Arminian view of salvation and operate in our church. We'll beat about it. We'll, we'll beat it we'll, up. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll educate them. We'll take that, make that more clear to them, right? Because those things have, they have implications in yeah. Christian life, right? And so, again, it's, we can have that unity in the essentials and liberty in the non-essentials, um, broadly speaking. Um, but in the day-to-day life of the church, sometimes those things 
have implications further down the line. And even, even something as quote-unquote benign as eschatology, there are different ways that um, certain views that you hold to. Yeah, right? Yeah, we've talked, yeah. Even, even so far down as your liturgy will change based on that. So I agree. I, I'm saying that I'm in agreement that we will all be in heaven one day. There's unity in the, in the essentials and liberty in the non-essentials, but that there are times when sometimes those secondary issues um, yeah. can have a more primary impact if we're not careful. Yeah, I agree. All right, I'm going to pray. We're only three minutes over, but I think it was a good extra three minutes. Father, thank you for this conversation that we've had today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for making it clear to us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for um, giving us faith so that we have uh, the tools we need to understand how to live our lives in glor- to glor- give you glory. We uh, pray that you'd be with the worship leaders today, that they would, um, and, that, and that for all of us, uh, that you would give us hearts to um, be open hearts and ears to hear uh, what you have for us today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.